0: Welcome to my life, Chiddus Applied, episode four hundred and twenty-four. This program is dedicated by Yecheskel, good friend, in loving memory of his father David ben Yecheskel Halevi, a true mensch. So we're now in the week of Chayesara, the chapter Chayesara in the Torah the fifth chapter from the beginning of the book of Bereshis, Bereshis, which means the life of Sarah. This week is also the birthday on Monday. The 20th of Hezbollah is the birthday of the Rebbe Rashab. So we'll actually begin with that, being that it's closer to us, meaning it's Monday, and then we'll go to Chayasara. Many different questions have come in as well as timely questions about many different topics. And I continue to invite you always, because the heart and soul of this program are your questions. Please submit your questions. It's completely anonymous. Every question is acceptable. Nothing's taboo. At chasidahsupply.com, there's a forum. And uh, please take advantage. I might as well mention chasidahsupply.com is a platform many Hasidic resources, but applying it all to our lives, meaning practical, emotional, psychological application. I also have a weekly Tanya Applied class, up to Chapter 9 in Tanya. That's every Saturday night. You can find all that, all the archives on com, plus much more material. Okay, so let's begin with Chav 20th Cheshven T- and the 20th Cheshven, Tafresh Chav Aleph, which is the equivalent of 1861. The Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, was born. And as uh, the Tzamech who was uh, the Rebbe at the time, he would his stalkus would be in Tafresh Chav five years later. So he said that uh, being born Chav. In the year, Tophresh Chofalef is the word keser. Chaf is keser, the acronym Rosh Tevis of keser, 20. And Tofrish Chofalef is the letters kisra. In Aramaic, that's keser. So he associated the Rebbe Rashab with keser. And indeed, in the great magnum opus of the Rebbe Rashab, which is Hemshech Tofrish Ayimbez, or Hemshech Terav, Hemshech Ayimbez, referring to the year Toferi Shaiyem when he began delivering that long hemshech, long series of discourses. The year was Toferi 1912, on Shavuos, which would span for 144 discourses, and then a whole other book on other section that he just wrote and was not delivered. So what is the central theme of that magnum opus is Kesser. begins with Kesser, and throughout, that's the undercurrent Kesser being the interface between the divine and existence. Kesser, is, of course, a word from, the, from Kabbalah, means, means crown, but in Kabbalah, it refers to the level that's higher than at higher than the 10 spheres, like the crown that's on top of the head, on top of the entire human being created in the Tzalem al in the divine image. So spiritually, it, it signifies a level that transcends, Within Keser itself, there are two levels, Atik and Arich, Atik Yemen and Arich Ampin. And as he explains in that Hemshach and many other places, taken from Kabbalah, especially Eitz Chaim from the Arizal, that Keser is the interface. Because God wanted to have a relationship. How can you have a relationship between a creator and a creation, between the infinite and beyond infinite with the finite, the immortal and beyond immortal with the mortal? So Torah in general teaches us that God manifested himself in Torah, in the wisdom of Torah, there's God's wisdom, God's blueprint for existence, but it's also a wisdom that relates and tells us of how God wanted to create the world and how he created the world, like we learn in Sefer Bereshis, in Pasha Bereshis, I should say, and it's all about the understanding God's process because God wants us to have that relationship with him. And it also tells us how we climb the steps from the bottom up through our Veda Hashem, through our work in refining ourselves and creating this relationship. So where's the meeting point? So though all sederistashas, the entire cosmic order, is really there to create these stepping stones, so to speak, between divine and existence. But keser plays a prominent role, because on one hand it's ratzen, It's the desire of God that he wants to have an existence. He wants to have a relationship. On the other hand, desire is not yet the details. The details, the desire to have a home, is the general desire that reflects the source, the one who desires. And then that desire, in in turn, manifests in the spheres of Chachma, binah, Das. When you don't count Kessah, you count Das, but that's a separate discussion. And there you have the structure of the the ten statements which God created the world. Now you have structure. So building a home requires two things. The one wants the home, that's the Rotson, so that's like the Kesser. And then how it comes down into the actual details. So Kesser plays that in-between state, as he says right at the beginning of Ayin Beis of the Hemshech. Now without Rotson, there's no interrelationship, there's no relationship. If I don't have a desire to do something, I remain in my re- world and you remain in your world. So the first step is, Ola the rose in God's will, which of course always has to be understood in conceptual terms, not physical terms and not space or, t- or physical space or time, conceptual terms, the desire of God. So when you say, you're talking about God's will. Then it says the details of what, what exact mitzvah may be. So Keser plays that interface, and the Rebbe Rashab, indeed, becomes a central theme in his memoriam. The Rebbe Rashab is known as the Rambam of Chassidus, which means he brought together all the different sugis, all the different topics and themes and conversations on Chassidus from the Alta Rebbe, and organized it in one organized system, showing the connection between the different topics creating this elaborate, comprehensive blueprint, which we can call the deepest and most comprehensive expression of Kabbalah Chassidahs that we have. The Rebbe Rashab, that's what he was known for. Rambam Chassidahs. Additionally, the Rebbe Rashab also established Temchet Mimim, which is the second great contribution among hundreds, and many more contributions. I'm just pointing out the two central ones. And that is an actual training ground to train young men, and today also the, the women's schools, young women, in the methods of Tehra and the methods of Chassidus, but above all, to use that Tehra and Chassidus to conquer the world, to transform the world, a material world, into a spiritual environment. And the challenges would be many. So was you have to learn Tehra to know. But then there's another th- aspect, which is called application. So, the yeshiva stem was established to additionally to the addition to the learning to apply it, as the Rebbe Rashab explains in Kunter which which where he explains the purpose of the yeshiva stem which he established in Nun Nunzaim, 1897. And uh, and a famous talk that he gave in Tofresh Samachalev in 1901 on it, referring to the students of the yeshiva as soldiers in the army of, the, of David, of, the, of King David. And what is he referring to? A a spiritual war, not a war with weapons, God forbid, but a spiritual war, the ruach, in spirit, to transform the material world into a spiritual environment. To make a home for God in this world. Basically, to take keser, as explained in the Chassidus, based on Kabbalah, and make it an actual reality, where there is an interface where we can live in a world which on one hand seems so antithetical to the divine, to godliness, but align it, because that's its deeper purpose, and align it to live up to its real calling and its true purpose, which is to be a home for the divine. So with that, a short overview of the Rebbe Rashab. I'll answer a few questions that came in. Um, why is the fifth Chabad Rebbe called the Rebbe Rashab? Why is the fifth rabbi of the Chabad dynasty called the Rabbi Rashab? Is it because he had a a, a rash, a rash of new and great ideas to modernize and spread the movement of Qasidism in the early twentieth century? <laughs> well, the word rash is okay. Interesting play of words. Rash is a word in English. Rashab simply is an acronym for Rabbeinu Sholom Ber. Sometimes fully written out, Mehurashab or Mur Rashab. Shalom David Ber was the Rebbe Rashab's name. So, just like some, you can refer to the Rebbe Rayatz, Rabbi Yezreel Fitzchok, or the Rebbe Marash, which is his name was Shmuel. And the same thing with others, that you use it, make an acronym of the name. Is there something deeper? I've never heard or seen something from the Rebbeim that explained the actual acronym, the meaning of it. But that's the simple explanation. You can read in other words. I wouldn't use the word modernized. I would use apply. I would use spread is good. Explain Chassidus in the language that develops its ideas in a language that we can all understand. And Rabbi Ashab definitely did that. So I don't really see the connection, but I uh, appreciate the thought. But he did create a rash of, of great new and great ideas. When we say new, in teren, new always means that it's not new and it's an original, coming from and based on what came before, but it's new in its application, it's new in its development. That's why we say, everything that a student, a great student, teaches and is mechadish, innovates, nit'n was given to meisha at Sinai. The Rebbe Rashab actually has, mentioned the Rebbe Rashab a a humorous statement he writes in one of his places, in said, actually, that they're such students, that their chidushim are so great, they weren't even given at Sinai. Meaning, obviously, uh, that those chidushim are not worthy of (laughs) the page they're written on. So a real chidush, and this is true the Havdal in science as well, is not completely new. It takes ideas that were there before and develops them in such a new way, you say, wow, now I appreciate them, now I understand them. So the klal, the general principle, was given at Sinai. and The chidush is the, it's a great Talmud Vosig that's able to draw out from it. I'm just mentioning it in a context we should understand the balance between the two. Okay. Uh, they say uh, there was a professor who wrote a paper, and he spent uh, half of his life writing this paper, and he was, was this was his great contribution. He presented it to his colleagues, his fellow wizards of the world. And they came back, and the consensus was, they said, your paper is good and original. So he was, wow, good and original, beautiful. They said, the problem is the part that's good is not original, and the part that's original is not good. You get the idea. Okay, moving on. What was the Rebbe Rashab's most important teaching, and how is it still relevant to us over 100 years since his passing? It's very difficult to choose a... Uh, in general, a most important teaching of any scholar, especially a Rebbe, especially a Chassidus. because How do you define most important? Is the most important, is the first verse of the Torah that God created heaven and earth. So it's hard to really make that statement. I think it's something that is really relative. Different people learning different things. At that point, that's the most important point to be learned. The same thing from the Rebbe's point of view. When he said it, that was the most important point to emphasize. And like any intelligence system, it has many fundamentals. If you want to say a fundamental principle, so I just explained the keser, the idea of interface. But would I say there's the Rebbe Rashab, Or it's in general chassidus, in general Kabbalah, and and Torah in, in general was given God's book, given to us to be able to understand God's mind, to understand God's will to understand the plan of existence, to understand how we should live our lives. But the Rebbe Rasha no question that he elaborated on it and made it a very fundamental cornerstone. In context of uh, of Chidushim in general, I can mention one or two in Hemshech which is another classic uh, series of discourses that were delivered in Tafrei Samech Vov through Tafrei Samech So that would be the equivalent of 1906, 1905 through 1907. The Rebbe Rashab, um in that discourse, one of the great classic discourses within that series of discourse, that Shekh is Vayelich Samagvav. So though, again, most of it is based on Tzamech Tzedek's Meimer, but has many additions, which today we can compare, and especially when he talks about the Kiddush of the Altar Rebbe and the Indian of Oyer. The Altareb Rebbe was Mechadish in Nagar Sarkadish 20, in universe. So, the way the Rebbe Rashab explains it there, that's one of the highlights. And again, I'm being very hesitant calling it that because, as I said, highlights are everywhere. But there's no question that's a tremendous understanding in understanding the interface between a built in God, a God that is what we call a non existential reality, meaning he exists, but not in any way that we can relate to that existence and how that ultimately interacts with the world of existence itself. And That Oyer has something that is completely bottle, completely selfless. At the same time, it exists. And he explains how that's a Kiddush, even compared to the Ramak and the Rameh, and great Kabbalists who were struggling with this issue of interfacing. On one hand, you want to connect to God on God's terms. On the other hand, you want to connect to the world, on, world on, on existence terms. Can you bring these two together when they're so antithetical? So it's a long discussion there, but that's one thing that jumps out at me when I'm thinking about it. And then throughout, throughout the mamar of the Rebbe Rashab, especially when you compare it to previous Rebbeim, you see the chidushim, you see the elaboration, the explanations. And above all, as I said, in just the mere scope of it all, what the Rebbe called about Ayim Beis, he said, Nefloyus. Wonders, even compared to the wonders of Samachvov. So, all of it adds up to tremendous contributions, especially in the Havana Saga, the understanding. Many things before the Rebbe Rashab were brief, not so much elaborate. The Rebbe Rashab developed it where you can understand the scope of it all. In many ways, we talk about Mishnah and Gemara. Gemara de- develops ideas in Mishnah. So, again, it's not completely original in that sense, but it's original because it develops it in a way that we can fully appreciate. That would be what I would say about the um, Rabbi Rashab. On the practical note, the establishment of the yeshiva Mimim also contributed a tremendous element, which is it's not just enough to learn it, but we have to actually, as I mentioned before, have a training ground, trainings, of young men and women who will go out to the world and use chesedis to impact and inspire everyone possible that you can reach. And that's what Chassidus does. It takes the Torah and demonstrates the neshama of Torah, reveals the soul of Torah in a way that every person can relate to it in their personal lives. Okay. We have a tradition that before the Rebbe Rashab opened Temchet Mimim, which is the yeshiva, it's called Temchet Mimim, he first went to pray at the Kvarim of his ancestors. He went to the oil of his predecessors, including his father, his grandfather, and so on. Um, we go all the way back to the al Rebbe. And what did he go there? That He went to pray there, that all the stu- all the students, including those who would enroll in the yeshiva in the future would be successful spiritually and materially. My entire life I've been struggling with both materially and spiritually. As a former student of Bavitch Yeshiva, what can I do differently to manifest and reveal these blessings from the Rebbe Ashab and be more successful? Well, not to deflect from the question, but the question really is a much broader one. The Torah tells us, If you will follow the ways of my laws and mitzvahs, I will give you blessings. The rain will come in its time, but gishmeichim also means material blessings. And someone can say, One second, I do Torah mitzvah, mitzvahs, I'm completely observant of Torah Mitzvahs, and I don't always see those, always see those blessings. <clears throat> so it's a, it's a similar question. So the answer, the classic answer is, firstly, you may have blessings that you don't necessarily recognize. Sometimes the person experiencing a miracle doesn't recognize it. It come in form, may not come in the form you consider success, but you're alive, healthy, have a good family. Some people are blessed with more wealth than others. So that's number one, appreciating the blessings we have, not taking them for granted. Number two, God has his mysterious ways. We don't always know how the blessings will come, when they will come, in what form and fashion. So yes, we all hope, hope and praise should be in a very revealed way, in a way that we can relate to, in a way that we appreciate. But it doesn't always happen in exactly that form because at the end of the day, there's a creator, so God, a creator and the one who governs the world and knows what is best for us. So the same thing here. The Rebbe Rashab establishing yeshiva, also wanted to make sure to empower his students and give them the best possible chance to be matzliach. So that's, of course, a true shepherd, a true founder, a true leader. That's what he's going to do, just as Moshe Rabbeinu did what he had to do to, to, to protect and to provide all the needs and resources for his people. So that's where the Rebbe Ashab said this. And the success <clears throat> refers to both success personally, as well as success in their learning and in their application. Now, if you think about it, this is back in 19, I said 1897 when he established the yeshiva. Look what happened afterwards, the 1900s came, World War I. World War II. I don't have to elaborate what kind of upheaval, what kind of destruction happened to the Jewish people, including to students of Lubavitch Yeshivas. Many were killed, displaced. But look today, here we are, the year 2022, Toph Shim Gimel, talking about, talking about, we're talking quite a number of years since then. And, Would you say he was masliach with his uh, prayers? Look, you have thousands, tens of thousands of students that have come out from the yeshiva stem all over the world. Today there are branches. And not just come out and graduated, but gone out to change the world. Every shliach, every shlucha in existence is essentially a product from this yeshiva system. Now, is everyone successful? The answer is what you mean by success. They impact people, they've changed lives in good ways. Some may be wealthier than others, some raise money more than others, but overall, it's a success story. And even when someone says, say, one second, I don't see the success in every detail, you look close enough, you'll find successes. It all depends what you define as success. So I would say the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Um, and today, it's not speculation. You look back, the reality is, and we're talking about something that was promised in 1897, so we're talking now um, 20, uh, 125 years ago, What we've known Zion until we are today in Poffert Shempeh Gimel. That's a long time, and not just long time, but all that that transpired. So that's the answer. Regarding yourself, you have to make a keli, you have to continue doing your work in life, long this, Rabbi Rashab said this, especially this week, apply it to your life, in serving God, in reaching others and inspiring others. You keep at it in a dedicated way, in a committed way. The blessings have come already and shall come even more abundance. There's no question about it. And if you need to speak to a or to someone to help acclimate yourself, appreciate it. That's also vital, Not definitely not to, bring, not to be hard on yourself or to bring yourself down by saying, look, I've done this and that, but it means struggling materially and spiritually. So we all struggle, we all have our struggles, but we also have our strengths. And that's what we have to accentuate and focus on. And the Zgula of the Rebbe Hashab, who established the yeshiva, definitely will also help support that result. God, Hashem should bless you, Taket, to have great success materially and spiritually. But we have to forge ahead despite any challenges we may have. And know that every challenge, we also have given strengths to deal with those challenges. Okay, more questions came in, but I want to move on and cover more ground. I always say to myself every week, this week, I'm going to try to cover a lot more of the back things backlog so we can start really... Uh, addressing many questions. I feel bad every time a question is not addressed immediately. I really do feel that I owe it, in a way, to the person who wrote, who spent time and is either struggling with a question, just an issue that's bothering them, and I feel that uh, when someone writes to me, I feel that uh, need to respond. So I apologize, but simply there's too many questions for me to address all in one program. So I'm trying to work through it. So bear with me. this applied now to Chayisadim. Let's move to Pasha Chayisadim. There's a bunch of questions, and then we have follow-up and some relevant issues that are happening right now in the world, which I definitely want to get to. I believe I will be able to today, at least to some of them. And then I have a whole series of questions about prayers that came in over Tishrei. I also think are very important questions. That is very timely. I'll try to get to that as well. Okay, let's move here. Yeah. So, Chay Sarah, let's start with some opening, an opening remarks. It means the life of Sarah. Now, as the Rebbe points out many times, the name of a Parsha, even though we don't know exactly who gave the name, but the name became part of Mini Yisrael, custom by Jews, we use those names. A name, as the Alter Rebbe says, in Shayechud v'amunah, Indicates the, the essential message of the chapter. So you would think, Chayasara, what happens next? You're going to read the life of Sarah. Well, lo and behold, the first verse, literally, Vayushne Chayasara, and talking about her death, her passing. It's saying, Chayasara, the life of Sarah was 100, Me'ev, 127 years. And she passed on. So, if the word Chayasar means the life of Sarah. But you read the whole verse, the context is that these were the years of the life of Sarah. If you want the life of Sarah, it was the previous chapter, Vayera. Or Lech l'chaiv. but especially Vayera. Both those chapters. So, truth in advertising, so to speak. The name is deceptive. And the Rebbe's explanation is so powerful. I use it all the time is what defines life. So biological, medical definition we know. Someone breathing, their heart is beating, their mind is working. The Torah tells us the true meaning of life. We say, wicked people, even in their lifetimes, they're called dead. What does that mean, dead? Because they're spiritually dead. They're not connected to their purpose. They're not living up to what they should be doing. It's like when people say, (laughs) <laughs> yeah I'm physically alive but I'm, I feel like a zombie I feel dead inside I don't mean physically dead <laughs> the righteous even in their deaths they're called alive because their life is as the Altar Rebbe explains in the Geras is it's Chaim <laughs> Ruchnim spiritual life it's not life of flesh not Chaim <laughs> Psarim it's the life of love and reverence and, and faith in God something eternal that never dies. It passed on to the children. Now we see, what's the story of Chaya Sarah. You want to know when someone's alive, look at the impact they've had on people. We're talking about Sarah now, thousands of years after her passing. That's called being alive. The impact, Yitzchak was shaped by her. Look at Avram grieving Sarah. We'll start with that. Yitzchak was shaped to the point when he went to look... When Rivka came and brought him as a soulmate, how did he know whether she's the right one? He brought her into the tent of Sarah. Because Sarah's values lived on through Rivka. Her virtues, qualities. So the Torah is telling us, you want to know the life of Sarah? Look at the day after she's no longer physically here. And then you'll see what real life is about. That's briefly the point. It's a tremendous lesson in general. Now we, of course want both together. The spiritual life that lives on in a physical body. And that's why ultimately mesim will be the rejoining of body and soul. But don't ever think that because someone physically passed on, and God shall bless everyone with hariches yomim and long healthy years, chaim nitzchim going straight into Mashiach, but even if someone passed on, don't think that everything is dead. The physical body, but there. are Good deeds, their mitzvahs, their impact, their legacy lives on. That's the key thing to always remember. And that's why the Jewish people are here today. Because we always understood that. That as much as the physical is important, but all the wealth you accumulate and all the physical objects that you gather, all is temporary. It's all all mortal. All subject to change. It erodes, it deteriorates, and perishes. The only thing that lives on is a nitzchius, is the soul. But the soul is not disconnected. The soul has impacted this world. So our arms and legs and our very bodies, like the case of Sarah, channeled the vehicle for the divine will and for the soul's role in this world. And you see that in the generations that follow. Okay, with that said, let's go through a few questions that came in on this chapter. Are there any lessons that singles having difficulty finding a shidduch can learn from Eliezer's successful mission of finding Rivka for Yitzchak? And the answer is absolutely yes. That's why we're told the story. And in great detail. More detail than many other stories. I actually repeat it three times. Because it is the first, you can call it the first shidduch story in the Torah. We have Adama but there they're ready, they're born, they're created for each other. Avram and Sarah, we already told once they've already met. Here you actually see the dating process, if you wish, or the choosing process, where Rifkev is, is uh, Eliezer, the servant of Avram, goes and finds her, comes back. So there are many, many lessons. We don't have the time in this program to go through all of them, but you can develop, I would say, a volume, many volumes, of dating tips and marriage tips just on this chapter. I'll just point out, one, I mentioned before that when Rivka finally meets Sarah, when Rivka sorry, meets Yitzchak, and Yitzchak says, it says, he brought her into Sarah's tent. And Rashi brings from from Medrash, what was the point of bringing to the tent? He saw in the tent, he saw three virtues, three attributes that reflected his mother, one, the near Dolak Marev Shabbos, of Shabbos, a flame that she lit burned from Friday to Friday. Second, there was an Anon, a cloud of glory, an aura that hovered over the tent. And third, Baruch a blessing in the yeast, in the Issa, in the dough, I should say. As explained by many, the Rebbe explains it that these are the three mitzvahs, which are the foundation of a Jewish home. Nair Shabbos, Shabbos, lighting Shabbos candles. The second, Tarsim Mishpacha, which is reflective of the cloud, the purity, the aura, the refinement of the home. And third, Kashrus, the dough. Rosh Hatevis, Chana. Or hachain, chala nida hadlakas neirus. The Rebbe explained it quite extensively, in association also with his own mother, His name was Chana, and of course Chana Hanavia, the one that Khana that that gave birth to uh, to uh, Shmuel. The point being, is that these three virtues are not just technical. What do they represent? They represent personality. So that's the first thing we can learn from it. That when you're going on a shiddah, what are you looking for in your spouse? So we're not taking away from physical beauty and emotional compatibility and intellectual compatibility, but above all, you're looking for eternal values. Someone you can trust. Someone you can build a home with. Someone you know that will be a partner with you in life. And this is just one of many lessons that we can learn from this week's chapter. Prioritizing. What are the priorities when you date? Both lessons for the man and both lessons for the woman. To know what's vital, what's absolutely necessary, and what's optional. Not to make a means into an end, and to focus on those ends, which are the virtues, trusting someone, kindness. I often ask people who are dating and I say, well tell me the two, three, or three most important things. And not everyone always says, Kindness or trust, having a partner in life, people say all kinds of different things, and many of them are beautiful things. But this is one of the things of creating that laser focus of what's most important in a person's life, and it is the eternity because you're building a binyan adayat, an eternal edifice. Why did God bless the Ovis with children, and not something more spiritual such as ganeden, elam haba? Why did He actually, why do He usually bless them with mundane things such as land? And many children. <clears throat> well, I'm not sure the context of the question, but let me put it this way. I don't know if there's a greater blessing than children. You say spiritual. Children are not mundane. The greatest blessing in life is having children. Besides the fact that Nachas and the joy of you have that you have the power and God gave you a gift to shape a life. And look how children can bring to their parents the joy, the great joy, that there's nothing comparable. But also, it's the secret to eternity. It's the greatest gift. When Hashem blessed Adam and Chava, and the human race, that you do not die. You bring children into the world, they carry your genes, your DNA, and you pass that on, you pass on your legacy. Are there challenges? Of course there are challenges, but it's the greatest blessing in, in, in life, is, is having children. And it is the secret to eternity. The only thing Chsidis says that creates Yeshma'ayin. Yeshma'ayin means something from nothing. So God is total Yeshma'ayin, creating something that has no precedent. But imagine, just the seed of a father, the egg of a mother, and it conceives what? A child, look, a full blown child ultimately after nine months of pregnancy. That's not a miracle. So I'm not sure why that is being seen as, uh, from the point of view of Torah and greater than Ghanedin and Elam Haba and all the he- Elam Isruchrim. And finally, we all know what al Altar Rebbe writes in Patek Lamad Vav and Tanya, from the Medr. Nesav Baruch He wanted a home in this lowest of worlds. All the higher worlds, including Ghanedin and Elam Habah, Hoya Lelehem Yiridim there you did. They're, they're very highly spiritual levels. But compared to levels higher than them, they're lower. It's only this world where something is completely new. So I wouldn't dismiss mundane things. In addition to everything I've said about children, including the blessings when you talk about sati as I mentioned before. Okay. We see that the Avis had difficult children. Yishmael, Esau, if the Ovis were unable to raise their children properly, what chance do we have with ours? Another question, what parenting lessons, if any, can we learn from the Ovis and the Mice, from the patriarchs and the matriarchs? Well, I would say the exact contrary. If the Ovis had perfect children, then you'd say, how can we compare to the Ovis? They're so superior to us. We're simple mortals, simple people. On the contrary, when you f- see that Avram yatsim emenu Yisshmal, as Chizkis explains, yatsim emenu, wasn't exactly aligned to the chesed of Gadusha of Avram Avinu, and Yish- and Esav in uh, Yitzchok yatsim Menu Esav. Esav was a warrior, not exactly aligned to the pachad Yitzchok, to the Gvura and reverence of God of Yitzhok. Yes, indeed, Avram also had Yitzchok, and and, and Yitzchok had Yaakov. They also had to deal with Yishmol and ASA respectively. So on the contrary, it teaches us, even the great Ovis and Nemois, who, who were Merkava Mamish, complete vehicle, completely aligned with what God wants, had their challenges. And you learn from how they behaved. Firstly, the unconditional love on one hand, the constant attempt to help improve their child's life, and sometimes the need for discipline. Like in the story when Sarah tells Avram and Hashem tells him to listen to Sarah, to send away Ishmael. He's not the place to go into the very lessons, but that's exactly the point, that you can learn much from that. Even how Yitzchok deals with Esav. And even how Yaakov and Rivka deal with it in a different way. All these are lessons in parenting. And again, I would say you can write volume, volumes. So we have now volumes from the story of Shaduchim, from the story of Rivka and Yitzchak, and our story from the, a story the parenting from the stories of Avram and his children and Yitzchak and his children. But as I said, I'm being brief, but there are many, many lessons that can be learned from it. And ultimately, not in any way just rejecting, at the end of the day, Esau and Yaakov reconcile. When Meshach comes, they'll completely reconcile. Yishmol does tshuva. So the Torah is a real book about real life, not just to tell us about those that were perfect human beings. Now, obviously, there's deeper spiritual meaning in all these stories, but there's also practical lessons. Above all, parenting is a great gift, but a great challenge. When Moshe was on the Mount Sinai, and the Malachim claimed and argued to God, give us the Torah, and ultimately it's not in heaven and Hashem tells Moshe to tell them explain to them why the Torah belongs to you and one of the things Moshe says it says honor your parents your father and mother do you have parents? Malachim don't have parents so parenting is not happening in heaven it happens on earth and on earth there are both things it's great gift and great challenges but you have the power to shape a life shape lives so children don't belong to parents Parents are like gardeners, caretakers. And we see how much parents can have impact on children in a beautiful way, and unfortunately sometimes not. So when you need to have good parenting lessons, you open up Chumash and look at Avram and Sarah and look at Yitzhak and Rivka and look how they dealt with their children. Yaakov also had his challenges with his children. With Yosef, the brother selling him into slavery. It wasn't simple matters. Was talking about very serious issues. But when you read closely, you'll find that there was the constant sensitivity and a constant care. It wasn't about them, the parents. It was about the child and what you have to do. Doesn't always go easily. And there's, as I said, much to be learned from Yitzchak's attitude to Esau, even though Rivka and Yaakov took a different approach. But the Torah tells us both. So, as I said, I'm not going to go into more details now. It really deserves its own. I want to do justice to it, and therefore staying away from actual specifics. It's just general principles that we can learn from them. The general balance between chesed and gefur. What does it mean that Avram's children will be like the stars? There are only a few thousand visible stars to the naked eye, so it can't mean that. But there are more than trillions of stars in the universe, So does it mean that Avram will have trillions of children? Well, when you look at the expression, it says that there'll be multiple like the stars across all the heavens. So first of all, Avram's children today are all over the world. So in that sense, it's not necessarily exactly like the number of stars, but in their expanse, in their scope. They spread throughout the whole heavens. And the same thing with Avram's children. Now remember, Avram's children includes Jews, which are also spread all over the world, but not just Jews. Avram's children also include Bnei Yishmael and Bnei Esau, which covers basically the entire Christian Western Roman world, Adem, and including Bnei Yishmael, the entire uh, Arab Muslim world. And if you count many other nations, some say they also derive from Avram Avinu. As far as the actual number goes, I believe there may be some commentaries that talk about it. I don't know if you could say, because there are no trillions, there are no trillions of human beings. But that's how I would uh, explain it. Because remember, the point is not not a quantity thing. It's about impact. Avram was one man, Sarah was one woman. And you think, okay, they had their children, their families, and that would be it. No, they become so prominent Covering the entire sky, covering the entire span, expanse of Earth, that we see them and their effects, and like stars, shine. The yeah, children and the progeny of, of Avraham Okay, let's. Um, is it appropriate for from women and girls to wear those nose rings today? We know that the Imois, at least Rivka, wore them, but it seems that it is frowned upon today in our community. Is that a mistaken notion? Look, the Torah does not tell you it's a mitzvah to wear a nose ring. There's a thing called culture, there are things in each time it's placed. I'm sure the clothing that they wore, that's the patriarchs and the matriarchs, the Ovis and the Mois, are not the same clothing we wear. Different part of the world, a different time in history. So the things that are eternal is when the Torah tells us these are the mitzvahs to do. There are arm and huggies, all customs, but not everything that's passed on. As I said, exactly how they dressed then, they dress very differently and so many other factors that are different. So no, I don't see it about frowned or not frowned. Everything in its time. There are lessons we know. There's a famous sicha from the Fidika Rebbe, to the women in Riga, where he talked about the different type of jewelry that women wear and the lessons to be learned from it. But that's Ruch lessons. It doesn't mean that a woman has to wear all those different type of jewelry. Some wear, some don't wear. It's not even a mitzvah to wear jewelry. But... It does beautify, and in each time in society, each time in period in history, there are different things that are beautifying, that as long as they're according to Allah, that's fine. There are things today, I'm sure, ornaments, that didn't even exist a hundred or two hundred or a thousand years ago. So we have a tater that tells us what's acceptable, what's not, and after that, it's already optional. So that's the answer to that. Being that we're on that topic, dear Rabbi, Thank you for your generosity and openness. I have a question, and I don't mean to be irrespectful. But what is the difference between the head covering for women in Judaism and the head covering in Islam? And how can you fight the latter without being against the former? If you don't want to address it, I'll, un- it, I'll understand. Well, I am addressing it. So first of all, as we know, many things were we'll learned from the Torah that were applied in other religions and other faiths and other schools of thought. So the very concept of a married woman covering her hair, maybe it's a beautiful thing that other cultures and other religions adapt, adopted some of it or part of it or, or, or similarities to it. I'm not sure the reasoning why it is. Is it due to modesty or other factors? Now the question is, in Islam, it could be the coverings are far stronger. You see, in some of the Muslim countries, women cover from head to toe. You never find that in Judaism. There's a concept of tzniyas and modesty, and this covering definitely parts of the body that's supposed to be covered, but not to that extent. So, I'm not I'm going to make a comparative study, but the principle of modesty that Judaism so advocates, which means walking with dignity before God, and others learn from that, I see that as a virtue. So, I'm not here to criticize. Muslim dress, Islam, or Muslim type of dress. Every country has to deal with it. I know there's issues in different countries, but that's not something I'm gonna comment on. It's not my domain or, or matter. I mean, it's a religion. People are part of that religion, they respect it, so on. I mean, do I have general comments that I can speak about Islam or Christianity or other schools of thought? We all have comments. But as far as I said, the beautiful parts of it, is they're trying to implement modesty and hopefully it works but modesty also has to sometimes have measure so you can talk about that but i don't have much to say and i'm not here to go and fight the latter without being against the former who's fighting the latter i mean i, I haven't heard any rabbis or anyone i know that i respect that is fighting the way muslims dress I mean, fighting maybe if, if muslims behave in ways that are inappropriate or terrorists and so on, but not to, to address. Everybody has their codes. And within Judaism itself, you'll find different communities have different standards, and God bless them all. It's not our job to figure out what Sini you know, is by definition. Besides the basics that we all accept, there are different standards in different cultures, and different countries, and different communities. Okay. How should we respond to the latest bout of anti-Semitic vitriol? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, how are we supposed to look at all the anti-Semitism that is coming up in this country? We have it from the right and from the left, and most recently, all of this Kanye West business. He has millions of followers who have now been introduced to these old anti-Semitic tropes. Tropes, is that how you pronounce it, or tropes? Tropes. Do we have a future in this country? Reading all the Jewish news about this can be quite anxiety-producing, especially with rise, the rising of physical attacks on Jews that we've seen throughout the last few years. Thank you very much in advance, and hope you are feeling well. Robert Jacobson, another question in this, uh, in this vein. I first want to send you blessings and continued success for your guidance and teachings of Yiddishkeit. My question relates to the movement which has been in the news of black people enslaved in America and colonies referred to as the Israelites. Black Hebrews is the movement. Is this idea and the anti-Semitic propaganda associated with this movement something the Jewish people should respond to? I remember hearing that there will be a time when other nations will claim to be, quote-unquote, true people of Israel. What, if anything, should we, as a people, do to educate those who seem to want to be Jewish but have no knowledge of Torah or Jewish history. Is it possible these are descendants of the lost tribes of Israel? Your insight and guidance would be very appreciated. Thank you. Okay. So, a few key points here. Let's just first of all talk about anti-Semitism. I want to make you aware that I've spoken about this topic quite extensively over the years. We actually, if you go to MeaningfulLife.com, on the front page you'll see an opening slide that leads you to a landing page with links to many different angles on this topic, which will do far more justice to it than I can do in these short minutes. But there you'll find a lot of material, classes, articles. In, in essence, there's two key things to remember when dealing with anti-Semitism. Yes, it's an age-old, maybe the longest discrimination, and the longest sin in history, in a way, going back to uh, of Saint Eliyakov. That Esav hated Yaakov. The way Tzedek Sidius explains it, that there's a fundamental dis, um, hatred, and um, the word I was using for was even despise of Esav to Yaakov, which reflects sometimes the despise of the material to the spiritual, and we see it throughout history, whether it's the Egyptians enslaving the Jews, and later the Persians and the Romans and before that the Babylonians. And throughout history, the expulsion of Jews, the genocide of Jews, the Holocaust, ultimately. So it's a long history. And therefore we have a lot of literature. More than that, we have a history of how we dealt with it. Number one was, we did not get defined by it. The haters don't define us. We define ourselves. That's vital because when you're hated and when you're discriminated against, sometimes it can get to you. you. say, maybe I should change. No, you are who you are, blessed. And for whatever deeper reasons, maybe it's part of the whole challenge in this material world where God is concealed, so His chosen people are also concealed, and people do not appreciate who they are, even though in many ways they're jealous of them, and they emulate them even. The major religions, those that hated Jews most, were born straight out of Judaism, which is an irony of all ironies. The people they worship, the prophets that they, so to speak, prophet that they worship, are a complete Jew. And yet how many Jews were killed in his name? So we don't lose our identity. Secondly, no, we don't want to ignore it. You have to be prudent, and you have to do whatever you have to do. Whether it means locking your doors today, or whatever, did. and you see Jews negotiated and tried to, um, in some way, appeal to their hosts. I mean, Yosef actually turned Egypt into a superpower, and he was loved for that. And then they turned on the Jews. If you could, in some way, and that's why Jews did that. They never compromised themselves. But they definitely tried to have influence on the leaders, create more benevolence. In some instances, there were Jews who were great advisors to different... Uh, non-Jewish leaders, and help helped the Jewish people. Negotiating, the Rabbeim negotiated, they went to Petersburg, say negotiated, as much as they were able to, to try to make the conditions for Jews easier. So you have to always make an effort. You can't just lock yourself up and say, Hashem will protect us. Efforts were made, like Yaakov. How did he prepare for this arch enemy of his, the ace of Saint Eliyakov? He prayed, he prepared for war, and he prepared a bribe to appease him. Thank God the prayer and the appeasement was enough. But we have to prepare and be prudent. And therefore, we don't take it lying down. And especially today, when we do have a voice, and that's what makes it unique. There was a time you couldn't protest. There was no one to protest to. I'm talking about in this world, only to Hashem. Today, we have that ability to speak up. And today, we also know, and this has been said by many Jews and many non-Jews, that it begins with Jews, and then it ends up attacking everyone. As soon as you attack an innocent person, you're attacking all innocent people. The Jews were the miners' canary, as that was called. They're the first. They're always the ones that are picked on the scapegoats in the beginning. So it's really an attack against the human race, if you really think about it. As I said, many non-Jews recognize that. And look at history. Had Hitler not picked on the Jews, he, first of all, may have been much more successful. But he didn't just pick on the Jews. He went and attacked Russia, and he attacked anyone that he felt was an enemy. Thank God that, in a way, if he had only picked on the Jews, it may have been easier a little, because then he wouldn't have started a war with others. But it doesn't work that way, because hatred is hatred. When you hate, you hate. Very hard to start drawing lines where you stop with your hatred, because it's coming from a place that's not rational. And finally... So that means we have to stand up and say whatever we have to say. Use our power, use our influence. It's not just, you know, slap me and I ignore it. No, you have to protest and make sure and prosecute if necessary. But the key is not to become defined by that prosecution. Like someone told me, yes, we need the anti-Semitic organi- the anti-anti-Semitic organizations, but let's not identify ourselves as being anti-Semitic. Too many Jews say, what makes you a Jew? I'm anti-anti-Semitism. No, we have to be four, and that's the ultimate point, that the Jews are here to bring light to the world. The fact that darkness fights light, and darkness sometimes hates light, is the problem of darkness. We continue to forge ahead, in prudent ways, in practical ways, but we continue to bring light. And what is light? The message of God, that every human being was created in the divine image, and the mission is to be a virtuous person, a giving person, a righteous person. Look at Avraham Didn't he have enemies? He had plenty of enemies. They threw him into a, into a fire and many other challenges. But he continued his message of kindness, of chesed, charity, virtue, benevolence, compassion. And it changed the world. So we're here as those witnesses and we continue on. And there are the final throes of what we'll call it the darkness that pops up here and there. And I say final throws because we're told Mashiach is right on the threshold of Mashiach. That doesn't mean that Mashiach and the Gula is here completely, as we see from these acts, especially when they become violent. As far as the issue recently with his, the, the, the new version, or I don't know if it's new, of black Israeli, Israelites and that the Jews stole their heritage from them, first of all, a lot of nonsense that's completely based on ignorance. I mean, if someone can identify Jewish roots, it doesn't matter what color they are. By all means, if they go through a conversion, according to Allah, we also know they're Jewish. So we have, we have guidelines. No one's going to dictate to the Jewish people what makes a Jew a Jew. But once it comes with hate, then right away, you know, there's another agenda going on. You know, it's one thing for people would say, we're a lost tribe, or we have customs. Maybe the story with the Ethiopians. Not getting now into the controversy. Should they be converted? Are they Jewish or are they not Jewish? And conversion actually was an act of compassion because since they may have lost certain guidelines, halacha guidelines, it was to make sure that everything is right. So you just, you do that. It's called a geir, which means that even if you don't know for sure, but someone it's assumed to be Jewish, just to make sure you go through a gear so there's no doubts. But once it comes with hatred and other stuff like that, then you're dealing with a whole different reality. And hatred is a, is a, a cancer of its own. And you can't always deal with it rationally, meaning I'm going to rationally explain to someone. So getting into debates about these matters is not the way. You do whatever is possible to protect the innocent and don't let anyone discriminate and badmouth mouth and stereotype, and use every pressure possible, whether it's on campus or in media or any other way. But at the same time, we have to become even more proud Jews and live up more to our legacy, because at the end of the day, that's what little light dispels much darkness. And whether they know it or not, sometimes the most anti-Semitic are the ones that are most, I would say the word jealous, but in a way respect, but hate that aspect of the Jewish people. So the fact that we try to assimilate or hide it, it's not going to solve the issue. That's even more, in a way, many, even more repulsive to many anti-Semites. And the day will come when they will all recognize the one God and the role of the Jewish people. And we have to do our job to live up to it and definitely not get into the gutter on that level, and stoop, but on the contrary, to always stand proud and continue our mission in this world to be witnesses of God, ambassadors of God of light and goodness and virtue, stokhe and mishpat. Okay. Okay, now I have to choose because I was going to cover a lot more, but uh, that didn't work out, so let me see what I'm going to do right now. So let's do a little follow-up. Dear Rabbi, hello from Woodstock, New York. In Temple, our Rabbi was talking about how our patriarch, Abraham, pleaded with God not to destroy Sodom if there were at least 50 righteous people. They didn't find any righteous people, so God was allowed to destroy Sodom. But it's apparent that Abraham found a formula to help avert destruction, destructions. And that's when there are 50 righteous people, God is not allowed to destroy a city. But in that case, why did God allow the Holocaust? and the destruction destruction of European Jewry, there were a lot more than 50 righteous people in Europe. There were more than 6 million righteous people. Well, as we know, when it comes to this topic, I don't have an answer. Yes, there were more than 50 righteous people. There were 1.5 million innocent children. These are the mysteries of God that we can argue with God and protest why, why, but at the end of the day, we don't know why. And I cannot answer why. We have to answer the different question. What are we going to do about it, as we discussed before? The why of, a- of anti-Semitism, the why of hatred, the why of genocide, the why of the Holocaust is beyond us. Yeah, and I wish have you know, stood up to God and said, how could you allow such a thing? So there is a formula, and we're told, and we continue to maintain... Being righteous is the way to go. But there are mysteries that we do not understand. It says Uit Hashem after be. Mashiach comes, will thank God, we'll acknowledge God for afflicting us in a way like understanding. I don't know if it's understanding or Uit Hashem. But we're definitely not there right now. So I wouldn't look to ways to find ways to justify and explain that even though they were righteous, this happened, that happened from the mysteries, and that's what we need to accept. It's what I heard many times from the Rebbe, Sort in letters. The why, if God wanted us to know why, he would tell us why. It means that we can continue on without knowing why. But we ask, what are we going to do about it? Another question. I'm going to try to pray, phrase this respectfully, as you often ask. If, but I do want to make sure to highlight how odd this is. Lloyd is asking is asked by the angels about the people of Sodom. He says the majority are wicked. Did Leutra speak Lashon Hara? Were the angels willing, soliciting and listening to Lashon Hara? Obviously they were not interested in Shadduchim. Okay. Well, let's put things in context. Lashon Hara. The angels were sent to destroy Sodom. As we're told in the beginning of the chapter. They knew exactly why they were coming, because... God heard the cry from Zidane and saw their wickedness and decided time has come. So it's true, Avram prayed for them, but that didn't work. And Zidane was going to be destroyed. They didn't need light to tell them. So number one, it wasn't Lashon Hara. Number two, when it comes to right and wrong, and good and evil, there's no concept of Lashon Hara. It's clarity. It would be like saying there are murderers out in the street, but I can't talk Lashon Hara, so I'm not going to tell you that. There's danger involved. The citizens of them, the, the, were dangerous people. When it comes to that type of thing, Lushnahar does not apply to a raid for example, a murderer, someone's running with a knife around. Lushnahar is a very different reality. So, Leg was simply telling them a fact, firstly, that they knew. Not that and that justifies it. Doesn't mean Lushnahar you can speak just because others know the facts. You're still not supposed to speak bad about others. But here we're talking about a real danger. We're talking about a, cr- a criminal city, criminals. So that's the the obvious answer to that question. Okay. And finally, I'll do this. Is Lee Zeldin losing the election? We're talking about for the governor of New York. Is Lee Zeldin losing the election for governor a sign from Hashem that he's being punished and publicly embarrassed for marrying out of the faith? and gleefully parading his daughters around the state during the campaign. It's a bigger barrier to marry out of the faith, and Hashem won't tolerate it. Zeldin could have and should have gone to the shatran like everyone else does, and married an isha Schayel. But he made a bad choice in his life, and now he doesn't get to make bad choices for New York. Okay, I guess this is not, you're not really asking a question, you want to make a statement. I don't get into that type of rhetoric, um, A tinnik shenishba would be with a category, I would put it. I don't know the man, but I'm sure he didn't know much better. And that's not justifying his behavior. If anything, what you should do is make an appointment, go see him, and kindly learn a little terachsidus with him, and don't criticize him the way the Rebbe taught us. Teach him about Yiddishkeit. That's what you do. So this whole tone, this approach of judgmentalism, and what are you going to say about if he did win, or others that win that are not exactly uh, fully observant? So I wouldn't go into that type of uh, character assassination. He didn't know better, and uh, yes, he should learn. I don't think it has anything to do with winning or not winning. I can't tell you that answer. Maybe Hashem has his plans. I don't know those plans. I said mysterious plans that God has. But that's just the general gist of what I would say about this. Now, I will say I got a little more than I thought I'd cover, so that's good. And there's more questions and I will continue to address them. So with that, I'd like to conclude this uh, program of My Life Chassidus Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone have a very blessed week. Let us learn our lessons from the Rebbe Rashab and the blessings that he's given us and the strengths to be true soldiers and bring the light of God, the light of Teir, the light of Chassidus to the world. Good good idea to learn some of the Rebbe Rashab Chassidus this Monday in Chof Cheshvin. And the week of Chayasarah, the eternal legacy that Chayisada left us all, and especially the women of Israel. And may we march this week, as early as possible, into the Gula Mitzvashlay, with the total eradication of Ruachatuma Avimina all the negatives, the toxins, the hatred, the discriminations. A world will be Oz Sof, a of Am Lucha, total unification. Of all the nations, including Esav, in serving one God, all in unity. Be well and a good week. Thank you. This program is brought to you by My Life. Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidahsupply.com slash donate.